Could I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17? We're going to read together there in a minute, um, Acts chapter 17. But before we, we read the Scriptures together, I just want to take uh, a f- just a brief opportunity to talk to you about Christmas. Um, Christmas this year. Uh, many of you, I hope, would have seen my email that, that I sent out on behalf of the elders a couple weeks ago to to say that because this year Christmas falls on a Saturday, uh, our concern as elders was that this would result in many people choosing to not come to church on Sunday. Um, and, and yes, while remembering that Christ's birth is, is important to us as Christians, uh, the celebration of Christmas Day is certainly secondary in importance to our celebration of the Lord's Day. And so we discussed this as elders, we, we recognize that the scripture gives us no command to, to gather to celebrate Christmas Day, but the New Testament pattern and command certainly does uh, reveal to us the, that it is clear that we gather as the Lord's people on the Lord's Day. Um, in Exodus chapter 31, uh, although um, we are under the period of, of the New Testament, uh, Exodus 31 makes it clear where God says to his people that he has given them the Sabbath, this one day in seven, um, as a covenant forever to be a sign to the world around them that we are his people and that he made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And so that is our pattern as Christians. As we, we gather every Sunday, people are today at the malls, they're doing Christmas shopping, they're doing all kinds of other things. If they ask you what you did, your day looks so different to them they should say, but why? Why on earth did you go to church on Sunday? And you can use that as a springboard uh, to tell them of this covenant God who created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And so it was with that desire to honor the Lord's day on the Sunday following Christmas um, and the opportunity for us to redeem Christmas from the worldly celebrations at this time that we proposed this year to, to have Christmas, our Christmas service on Christmas Eve, on the Friday night, which we hoped would then just uh, have a day between the Christmas Eve service and Sunday, and that would help us to make both Christmas and the Lord's Day a priority. Um, we also thought that Friday evening would give us an opportunity to invite uh, friends and neighbors, unbelieving people to our Christmas Eve service uh, who might otherwise not come to church on Saturday morning. Nevertheless, due to a number of objections and requests from various members in the church, uh, we met again uh, as elders this past week and uh, we've decided to stick with the request of of many in the church with the usual practice uh, of Christmas morning. Um, so that'll be Saturday morning. There'll be a service at half past seven uh, to half past eight, one hour, and then a one hour break, and then the second service from um, half past nine to half past 10. But this comes with, with three appeals from us as, as elders. Um, number one, we are pleading with you to please not ignore the Lord's Day, as this is our priority as the gathered church. And so I would go as far as to say that if you can only uh, fit in one service over the Christmas weekend, please come on Sunday. Secondly, the main reason for 
the request that we received to move it back to the Sunday was for the sake of unbelievers in our community who perhaps only go to church once a year and who would arrive at our doors on Saturday morning and find them closed. And, and so on the basis of that, we will be open, um, but we are pleading with you to then make it a priority to invite your unbelieving friends and neighbors to come to church on Christmas Day. But I would challenge you, if you're able to invite them to come to church on Christmas Day, why not invite them to come to church on Sunday as well? Um, and then lastly, just to say that we desperately need volunteers to serve at the Christmas service on Saturday morning. We're going to have two services. We want to have two teams um, so that obviously people can be with their families. So we're needing double the amount of volunteers on the Saturday, and we're needing our usual Sunday volunteers for Sunday, all the practical duties, tea, registration, door stewards, worship teams. So I'm just pleading with you that um, you would please make yourself available for that. I think opportunities like this just lend themselves to, to remind us that while some of these um, traditions um, are important, uh, we need to always subjugate tradition to Scripture. And we as elders believe that our biblical principle that we want to honor um, is, is the Lord's day. Um, Christmas is important. Remembering the Lord's birth and His coming into the world is actually something we do regularly throughout the year. And, and yes, we certainly want to redeem the Christmas service, uh, the Christmas time from the world. Um, but let's not place too much emphasis on religious days uh, that do not have their mandate in Scripture. So there it is. Um, that's my heart um, on this matter. I know some of you have already changed your plans from Christmas Day to Christmas Eve to accommodate that. And now you're going to have to change your plans back, and I'm sorry about that, um, but we are trying to just lead the church here in what's best uh, for us spiritually and also what will be best in terms of the gospel uh, witness in our community. So um, I'm going on leave tomorrow, so if you send any more emails, um, I'll get to them in the new year, and, um, and I'll respond with next Christmas um, in the light of that. So um, trust that you would support uh, what we are trying to do here as a, as a church as we seek to make the Lord Jesus Christ known. So let's turn to our Bibles, uh, Acts chapter 17, and um, we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. This is Paul and Silas. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd." And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Well, just so far in God's Word, please keep that portion of Scripture open before you as we come to look at it this morning. So we started this short two-part series last week on the subject of spiritual discernment. And so I hope that during the past week, as you have been bombarded with news and, and messages and tweets and videos and conversations, that you've kept in mind some of the lessons that we learned last week, especially the lesson of be careful who you listen to. You will recall the, the research I quoted last week um, that falsehoods and deceptions and lies are not only 70% more likely to be shared on social media than the truth, but that those lies and deceptions then spread six times faster than the truth. And, and so I hope that this week you've made a particular effort to have nothing to do with anything which is not true. And that you have certainly not been part of spreading lies and partial truths on to others. Now, the, the focus last week was mainly on those then who preach and who teach the Word of God. And, and while the obvious audience of last Sunday's message was, was us as preachers, elders of the church, Bible study leaders, youth leaders, Sunday school teachers, we also saw that every one of us has a responsibility to faithfully declare the Word of God, to, to make those in our area of influence, our sphere of influence, that they would hear the gospel, that they would hear the truth. And so starting with ourselves, we need to faithfully declare God's word to our own hearts, the gospel to our own hearts, and then we can pass it on to others. But now today we're going to focus on what God's word says to us as the church very practically about what it actually looks like to grow in spiritual discernment. We saw last time that spiritual discernment is, is integrally connected with spiritual maturity and fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. And so then, how do we go about growing in discernment? How do we move on from the milk of God's word to the T-bone steak of God's word, uh, as Hebrews 5 urges us to do? Well, look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 is the goal of faithful elders and teachers in your life. Ephesians 4 verse 11, Paul says, And Jesus gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and then the shepherds and teachers 
To do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, so that we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. Why not? Because children, he says, are tossed to and fro by the waves. They carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so it's clear from Scripture that you and I, as believers, as members of God's church here at Honey Ridge, we are meant to be growing into spiritual adulthood. We are meant to grow from being a, a spiritual infant at conversion to a spiritual adult uh, as quickly as possible so that we will have discernment, that we will know right from wrong, good from evil, that we will not be carried away by human and, and spiritual deception and craftiness, which is all around us, but that we will be built up and equipped for the work of the ministry which God has given to us as his church. And so last week we saw that, that to be deceived simply requires you to be lazy. Just last Saturday, as I was preparing to preach that message to the camera, three ladies arrived at the church door. Lovely, seemingly Christian ladies, said they're from a church in Randburg, said that they're putting together a Christian course to equip pastors in, in growing theologically and um, and it would have been so easy to be lazy and to say, well, that sounds wonderful. Where do we sign up? But what I did is I thought about the message that I was about to preach. And I said to them, well, look, send me the information. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look up your statement of faith. And I'm going to see what you believe about God and the scriptures and about man and sin and about Christ and about salvation. Well, the lady sent me the brochure. Uh, I won't go into it, but we have heresy on our doorstep. The, the statement of faith looked fairly orthodox at, at a cursory glance, but as you dug a bit deeper, you realized that they used words in such a way which when I investigated further means that they deny the Trinity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were out on a Saturday morning recruiting pastors to their theological training uh, so that they could have a great influence for the gospel. That is what they said. And so what you see is that this is all around us. And we are being called by Scripture to do the hard work, to do the hard work of discerning the truth of God's Word. And that's what I want to focus on for the rest of our time today. So keep your Bibles open in Acts chapter 17. It's the passage that we've read. It's this historical narrative of, of Paul and Silas's missionary journeys uh, to Thessalonica and to Berea. And we're not going to work our way through it um, in terms of verse by verse this morning. Rather, what I'd like to do today is to just draw out of this passage as a whole some practical uh, tools for developing spiritual discernment as believers. And the key verse, the key verse for our study today is Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Uh, this is the verse, a verse that I've actually heard false teachers use as a kind of a magic wand um, to try and put the hearts of their hearers at rest, at peace, so that actually the hearers then don't go home and search the scriptures. 
They don't do exactly what the verse does because they say, oh, well, the preacher said everything he says is from the scriptures and they must go home and test it, so what he says must be true. And then they don't go home and test it. Be careful. Paul and Silas, we see here, have been kicked out of Thessalonica for preaching the gospel. And when they arrive in Berea, they immediately go back into the Jewish synagogue to continue their practice of preaching the gospel. And we read in verse 11, now these Jews, the Jews in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so from this verse, we we have the phrase, it's a well-known phrase used in Christianity, encouraging us to have a Berean spirit. People will say, you know, you need to have a Berean spirit. And what they mean by that is you need to go home and examine the scriptures to see if what is being said is true. But perhaps we've ascribed to the label of Berean spirit far too easily without really grasping the practical meaning of this phrase and giving it the attention it deserves. And so in the first place today, I want us to see that to mature in spiritual discernment requires that we receive the word eagerly. In verse 11, verse 11 starts by telling us that the Jews in Berea were more noble. Now that doesn't really ring true with our thinking of noble today in terms of nobility and royalty. It, it, it's used of noble character, the NIV says, and other translations speak about being more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. It basically means that they were willing to learn. Now, this is an interesting word because it ties in with our MIT research from, from last week, which says that people are naturally closed-minded tending to only listen to information that agrees with their already pre-existing ideas and beliefs and, and thus tend to be closed to the truth if it does not align with or fit their predetermined position or bias. But we are told that these Bereans were of noble character in that they were open to evaluate the teaching of Paul for themselves. They were not closed-minded, stubborn, saying we're not going to listen to what you say. They wanted to determine for themselves if he was speaking the truth. And the first aspect of their, their noble-minded approach to Paul's preaching is that we are told that they received the word of God with all eagerness. Now that word eagerness means enthusiasm to learn. It, it's translated elsewhere as, as a ready mind, a, a willing mind. It's, it's a mind that's, that's ready and enthusiastic to learn. Let's think about what this means practically then as you prepare yourself, as I prepare myself to come to church on a Sunday. How do you prepare your mind and your heart to come to church in order to receive the word of God with all eagerness? Well, Derek Thomas, in his commentary on Acts, says this, to listen with eagerness to a sermon is not something that comes naturally. It's something that needs careful cultivation. It would be an interesting, albeit perhaps depressing, exercise to ask ourselves just before this sermon began, what exactly did you expect to occur during the next 20 or 30 or 40 minutes? 
He goes on. He says, in order to cultivate a sense of expectancy when it comes to preaching, we need to prepare ourselves for it. Our souls need to be prepared beforehand. These Bereans were not expectant just because a visiting preacher had come to town. Their sense of expectancy on this occasion betrays a habit, a discipline whereby they had trained themselves to approach the preaching of God's word in a certain way. And like them, we need to cultivate this discipline. So how do you practically cultivate the discipline of eagerness and expectancy in receiving the word of God on Sundays. Well, let me just mention three brief points. They don't come from the text, but they come from the testimony of those who have benefited most from the preaching of the word of God week by week throughout the history of the church. You will find three common things in every person who has benefited greatly from Sunday sermons. Number one, prayer. How much time do you spend in the week praying for the preacher as he studies and prepares to preach God's word on Sunday? If you have not given a moment's thought throughout the week to me or Shane or Kyle or whoever else might be preaching on a Sunday, how can you suddenly arrive at church and be eagerly expecting that God is going to speak to you? doesn't make sense. How can you expect in God to have helped me in my study of the Word of God to handle it rightly so that I can rightly apply it to your heart if you didn't spend any amount of time praying to God for the preacher and his preaching? And then secondly, on this topic of prayer, how much time have you spent asking God to prepare your heart to receive his word eagerly. Maybe part of the reason why many people get so little out of sermons each week is because you have no expectancy for God to speak to your heart. And that is revealed through the fact that you never pray for the preacher and you never pray for your own heart. Your heart is actually closed to God. So prayer is the first um, practical way in which we can come to God's word on a Sunday eagerly, expectantly. Secondly, sleep. Sleep. Just like, not sleeping in the sermon, that's not what I mean. Um, sleep before the sermon. Just like you need a, a good night's rest before an important business meeting or a good night's rest before a big exam, so too you need a good night's rest on a Saturday night in, in order for your mind and your heart to be willing and, and ready to receive the Word of God on a Sunday morning. You cannot come to church after a, a late night of socializing and, and watching worldly entertainment, very often filled with ungodly things, and then think that your tired and preoccupied mind will be eager and willing to receive the Word of God the next morning. It just won't happen. And then thirdly, preparation. You need, uh, you need prayer, you need sleep, and you need preparation. The Puritan Richard Steele wrote this. He said, He that keeps not his foot when he goes into the house of God is very likely to stumble and to offer but the sacrifice of fools. 
Preparation of the heart for worship is like putting on armor, he said. When the heart is well fixed and prepared for the Lord's service, an impertinent thought or suggestion falls on our armor. But when we come to church unprepared, that thought meets with our very hearts and runs away with it. How many times has that not happened? As you've come to church and what you're thinking about, your mind is all over the place. As thoughts come in and there's no armor, there's no preparation to protect you. And so as we think about these simple three aspects to being ready to receive the word of God with all eagerness, prayer, sleep, and preparation. I've read this once before, but let me read it to you again. Another Puritan, George Swinock, uh, wrote these words more than 350 years ago. He said, prepare to meet your God, O Christian. Take yourself to your chamber, that's your bedroom, on a Saturday night, confess and bewail your unfaithfulness under the commands of God. There's prayer, confession of sin. Shame and condemn yourself for your sins. Entreat God to prepare your heart for and to assist you in your religious duties. Spend some time in consideration of the infinite majesty, holiness, jealousy, and goodness of that God with whom you will have to do. Ponder the weight and importance of his holy commands. Meditate on the shortness of the time that you have to enjoy the Lord's day. And continue meditating till the fire burns. You cannot imagine the good that you will gain by such forethoughts, such preparation. How pleasant and profitable the Lord's day will be to you after such preparation. The oven of your heart, thus baked in as it were overnight, would be easily kindled, heated the next morning. The fire so well raked up when you went to bed would soon be kindled when you rise. If you would thus leave your heart with God on Saturday night, you would find it with him on the Lord's day morning. Well, there's the first point. Receive the word of God eagerly. That requires you to do some hard work in preparation for what God will do on a Sunday. Secondly, we need to examine the word daily. And, and here we see this in verse 2 and 3 and verse 11. We're told in verse 11 that after receiving the word, which Paul preached with this eagerness, with this expectation, with this open-mindedness, they then spent the rest of the week examining the word of God daily to see if what Paul said was true. Now, there is a lot more going on here than we may realize at first sight because it is highly unlikely that any single Jew in Berea would have had their own personal copy of the Jewish scriptures in their homes, which means that if they examined the scriptures daily, it means that they came back to the synagogue every day. Perhaps they met together in small groups with the rabbi to examine the passages of scripture in the scrolls that were stored in the synagogue to make sure of what Paul had read and quoted and said. And so this probably, and, and here's a, perhaps a fourth tip to receiving the word eagerly, um, is they probably took notes during the sermon so that after the fact they could then go home and, and read and, and check the passages of Scripture which Paul had made mention of. Now, what does it mean to examine the Scriptures for themselves? 
I think verse 2 and 3 is very helpful in guiding us here, for we see in, in those verses the approach of the Apostle Paul in how he presented the Word of God to them in the first place. Verse 2 tells us what Paul did in the synagogue in Thessalonica, but this was his custom, this was his norm, this was his practice in handling the Word of God. We read in verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So I think there are four steps that this passage reveals to us with regards to examining the word of God. Reason, explain, prove, and judge. Let's just quickly look at those Firstly, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This is the word from, from which we get our English word dialogue. In other words, it means he conversed with them. He, he argued, he discussed, he debated. There was a, a conversation going on. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Secondly, he explained the Scriptures to them. This was to give meaning, to give clarity to something which was previously hidden or difficult or obscure. Uh, we see the same practice in, in Ezra, um, in, or with Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8, where Ezra reads the word of God to all the people, and then the Levites move among the people, gathering them into small groups, explaining the meaning of what Ezra read from the word of God, so that the people could understand. Thirdly, he proved certain things to them. He proved to them the essential truths of the gospel that it was necessary for Jesus to die and rise again. This word prove means to demonstrate or establish evidence that something is true. And then finally, we see from verse 11 that the Bereans, after examining the word of God for themselves, it leads to a judgment call to judge if what they had heard was true and should be believed or false and should be rejected. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Timothy was with Paul here in Berea. Later on, he writes to Timothy and he says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So this is how we are then to examine the word of God for ourselves. We are to reason with ourselves and others from Scripture. That one book that I've just mentioned from Joe Thorne is about preaching the gospel to yourself. We listen to ourselves all the time when our self tells us to sin, when our, tell, our self tells us what to believe in terms of all the nonsense out there. It's time that as Christians we started preaching to ourselves, reasoning with ourselves first and then others from Scripture. We are to seek the answers to difficult parts of the Bible so that they can be explained and understood. We are to let Scripture prove Scripture. Do not ever take a verse out of context and think that you know what it means unless you have first proven it with many other portions of Scripture that confirm your understanding. And then once you've tested everything, You've had the dialogue, you've, you've done the, the searching to find the answers, you've let Scripture prove itself, then you are to make a judgment call as to whether or not it is true or false. Does it measure up 
to God's standard of revelation? Does it square up with the truth of the gospel that is so clearly taught in the pages of Scripture? Does it align with historical orthodoxy? Meaning, does it align with the way godly saints of God throughout the history of the church have held something to be true? If what you hold today deviates from Christian orthodoxy of 2,000 years, you need to put a big question mark over that which you think is true. So we need to be very careful of allowing our very modern, individualistic, Western mindset to drive the way we examine the Scriptures daily. This doesn't mean, well, what does it feel like for me? You know, do I feel like it's talking to me? Does it make me feel good? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about examining the text. What did God mean when he said it? Now, I don't think that verse 11 implies that they did this examining in isolation. Yes, it's very important that your examining of the Scripture starts individually. Every day as you take your Bible and you read your Bible and you study it and you get to know it and you memorize it. But I think it's most likely that they did this examining of the Scriptures in community. Because they would have had to come to the synagogue to do it as they gathered in small groups during the week. And they discussed and they reasoned and they heard explanations and they found the proofs necessary to establish the truth. So how are you doing? How are you doing in this area of examining the Word of God daily? How are you testing if what you are hearing and reading and watching and believing and passing on is a true how are you testing that in the community of believers? When last have you had a conversation with another Christian about the Scriptures, about what the Bible says, about what the Bible means? And I don't just mean in community with your peers, but those who are older and wiser, Christians in the church, the biblical principle of letting the older teach the younger. When last have you gone to a, a mature Christian in the church and said, I'm, I'm grappling with this in my quiet time. Can we meet for coffee and talk about it? And then I, we, we have access to so many godly saints who have died and gone to be with the Lord, and yet they have given us their deep spiritual reflections on the Word of God in a multitude of books that have stood the test of time, that have stood the scrutiny of God's faithful saints over the centuries that you and I have access to. You see, if we are not doing this hard work of examining the Scriptures daily and listening to it and reading the, the trusted works of those who have gone before us, and instead all we do is we listen to popular teachers on YouTube and the latest trendy bloggers, or even worse, I've got a question about the Bible. Let me go to Google. Please know you are most likely going to be led astray. So let us be true Bereans in our approach to the Word of God. It starts in your own home, in your own devotions, and then it flows into the community of small groups and Bible study. And then obviously that will feed through to what gets preached and taught here on Sundays. Then third thing we see from this passage is that to grow in spiritual discernment means that we must believe the Word promptly. Look at me at the flow, look with me at the, at the flow of logic, uh, the sequence of events from verse 11 to verse 12. Look at verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Many of them therefore believed 
and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So do you see that this expectant receiving of God's word leads onto a daily examination of God's word, and once we discover what the truth is, we are told, therefore, many of them believed. And we see the same even in Thessalonica, where after Paul has reasoned and explained and proved the gospel to them in verse 4, we see that many were persuaded and believed. This was no blind faith. They were persuaded by the truth of God's word and so believed. This is firstly the, the, the truth about Jesus Christ, who he is as our Savior. This must be believed. This is the starting point. But then everything else that flows out from the, the teaching and the instruction of Jesus in God's word, it must be believed. What God's word says about God, about his character, his holiness, his, his majesty, his justice, his mercy, his wrath, his, his grace, it must be believed. What God's word says about sin and judgment and eternal life and repentance and faith, it must be believed. What God's word says about the creation of the world at the very beginning and then the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth at the very end, it must be believed. What God's word says about gender and sexuality and marriage and parenting, and work, and pleasure, and money, and justice, and politics, and race, and abortion, and alcohol, and self-control, and holiness. It must be believed. If we are to grow in spiritual discernment, if we are to grow into the maturity of the fullness of Christ, we are to be those who promptly believe the word of God. All of it, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now remember what I said last week about the, the definition of discernment. I said discernment is the ability to understand what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, and what is truth and error. But that's not where it stopped. The definition went on and said, and then the wisdom to choose and to walk in that which is good and right and true. In other words, discernment is not simply what we understand and, and may even believe. True discernment always works itself out in action, in obedience, in the way we actually live our daily lives. You can't say, well, I've got discernment. I can tell right from wrong, but I just choose the wrong the whole time. You've got no discernment if you keep choosing the wrong. Discernment leads from a discernment of the truth to an action that lives out that truth in your daily lives. And so the fourth thing that we see in terms of maturing in spiritual discernment is that we must obey the word fearlessly. We see this in verse 1 and 2 and then verse 10. Now in this passage, we just have a, a brief glimpse into the lives of two of God's faithful servants, Paul and Silas. And their maturity in, in rightly handling the word of God, it led to fearless obedience. Verse 1, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue there, and they went in, and on three Sabbath days, they reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What happened then? Well, we read, there was this great uproar. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ led to this, this violent mob forming, like we see on the news often when we watch 
these days with social sort of riots and things. There was this public protest in the street. They attacked the house of, of Jason, who was Paul and Silas's host. When they could not find Paul and Silas, as they do today, they just need to find anyone else who they can then drag along in their mob. And so they took Jason and some other Christians off to the city authorities. Now surely after such a result of preaching the word of God, we would have encouraged Paul, hey Paul, Silas, just lay low for a while. You know, keep the gospel to yourself. You know, actually, Christianity is a private thing. So, so just keep it to yourself until the trouble has settled. But look at what they did. Look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Fearless obedience. This growth and maturity in spiritual discernment does not mean that you will avoid trouble in your life. It most likely means you will face trouble. You will face suffering and persecution for doing what is right, for the name of Christ. But whether the times are peaceful or troubled, growth in spiritual discernment always results in fearless obedience to Jesus Christ. The book of James makes this clear. We won't go there now. But James says, if you are a hearer of God's word and not a doer, you deceive yourself and your faith is fake. Faith by itself, says James, is if it does not have works, it's dead. And so James gives us a challenge in James 2.18. He says, show me your faith apart from works. Go on, try. I will show you my faith by my works, by my obedience. So how do you know if you are maturing in spiritual discernment? Are you still an infant or are you a, a spiritual adult? How do you see that outwardly? Well, James says you'll see it in their obedience to God. They will be doers of the word of God. They will be people, he says in James 1 verse 27, whose religion is pure and undefiled, in practical love for others, and in personal holiness before the world. If you show no love, no compassion, no care for others, other Christians and others in the world around you, James says you're a spiritual child. If your holiness, if you are constantly falling again and again into habitual sin, living in the world like the world, James says at best you are a spiritual infant. At worst you may not be saved. A true spiritual discernment always leads to fearless obedience. And then finally today, we learn from this passage that to mature in spiritual discernment means that you will proclaim this word of truth, this word of God faithfully. Last week, we saw in Jeremiah 23, verse 28, God said, let those dreamers dream their dreams, but let him who has my word declare it faithfully. Now, if you've done the hard work to examine the scriptures for yourself, to discover that it's true, then you have the word of God, and it now becomes your responsibility to declare it faithfully. We see Paul proclaiming three things to the people in Thessalonica. He says that it was necessary in verse 2 for Jesus to die and rise again. Paul was not a history teacher. He was not simply telling them about the historical facts that a man called Jesus died and then rose again. No, he told them of the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection. In other words, the heart of Paul's message 
was the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It was the necessity of Jesus to die in the place of sinners, taking upon himself the guilt and the punishment of our sins. And it was necessary for Jesus to rise again as the vindication that his sacrifice was acceptable to God and the proof of his deity. We also see that Paul proclaimed Jesus as the Christ the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He was the anointed one of God, the the sacrificial lamb of Isaiah 53 who takes away the sins of the world. And then we see Paul proclaim Jesus as Lord. Please hear me here. It's not enough to proclaim Jesus as Savior. That is certainly true. It was not that truth that Jesus was Savior that caused the uprising in the city. It was the fact that Paul proclaimed Jesus as Lord, which resulted in the riots. Look at the accusations brought against Paul and the other brothers in verse 6. I just love this phrase. These men have turned the world upside down. When last is a Christian that you know turned the world upside down? to our shame. True Christianity turns the world on its head. But what did they mean by that? Going on there in the verse, they say, they're saying that there is another king called Jesus. At the heart of true, faithful preaching and, and proclamation of the word of God is certainly Jesus as Savior, absolutely, as the suffering servant, as the sacrificial lamb of God but it is equally the proclamation that Jesus is king, that he reigns on David's throne. And if he reigns as king over the universe, he has to reign over your own heart. And that's when people will object. Jesus does not bow to any authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And it is this proclamation of Jesus as Lord which caused the people then and people today to rise up in anger against Christians, to cause riots in the streets, or more likely these days, riots on social media, to attack the homes and and the reputations of Christians, and to drag us before the mock judges and juries of this world. And so for us who are God's people, who are, I hope, desiring and striving to grow in spiritual discernment, who are maturing in in wisdom and understanding, who are growing in the skill of knowing right from wrong and true from false and good from evil, who are growing in fearless obedience to walk daily in that which is right and then to proclaim that truth to others, you and I will certainly face opposition from Satan who is the father of lies, and all those who have been deceived by him. And so to end, I want us to just take great encouragement from God's word today as we close. 1 Peter 3 verse 13, Peter was writing to persecuted Christians like you and me. Maybe not like you and me because we're not really persecuted these days for our faith, and that makes us really question how much we are living out this fearless obedience. But Peter was writing to those who were being persecuted for their faith. And he says in 1 Peter 3 verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? 
And by implication is, well, no one should really harm you. But he says, well, we live in a fallen world. So even if you do suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Verse 15, what a wonderful verse. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Do you see that spiritual discernment will result in a life of obedience which will end most often in persecution? But when you are persecuted, that same maturity and wisdom and discernment that you have gained by the Holy Spirit will be that which gives you the reason for the hope that you have to defend in that situation. And if you say, well, what on earth am I going to say if, if I ever get put into that situation? Well, Jesus says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So may God give us great encouragement to persevere in spiritual discernment and maturity. That means we're going to swim against the tide in our society. It'll come with opposition. It'll come with persecution. But Jesus is king, and he is reigning, and he has told us, do not fear, I'm with you. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for uh, just a, such a practical portion of your word that helps us daily as we go out here today. Lord, every one of us has to confess before you that there are areas in our life which lacks discernment. There are areas in the way that we conduct our marriages or our parenting or the way we are working or the way we are interacting with friends in the social arena that is just void of spiritual discernment. We ask that you would forgive us for that. Forgive us for seeking to pick and choose the parts of of your word that we like and rejecting or ignoring the others. Lord, won't you make us faithful students of your word, faithful students of the scriptures which contain all the truth that we need for both salvation and godliness through our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Won't you protect us, we pray, from Satan and his lies and, and those that believe his lies. Won't you make us ambassadors for truth in this world, no matter what that may cost. And Lord, the days are coming when we may well face severe persecution and opposition for standing up for the truth of your word. Help us to do it gently, uh, with great conviction and with lives of holiness and purity. And may we look to you to be our strength in those times to be your faithful witnesses. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.